on this episode of the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. Think of it like a Venn diagram where some feral cats are barn cats and some barn cats are feral, but not all barn cats are feral and neither all feral cats barn cats. This is the Wild Rose Vet Podcast with Dr. Savannah Howes-Smith. I am accompanied by the lovely Brooke Wildman. She is my veterinary nurse out at Rocky Rapids Vet Services. And in any given day, both myself and Brooke field a lot of different questions from our clients. And so I thought it would be fun today to answer some of the ones that we've uh, recently encountered and people have asked us. Because, um, yeah, I feel, like, uh, I feel like I get you to answer a lot of questions from our clients, Brooke, in any given day. Yeah, yeah, most <laughs> of the time, actually. <laughs> See. But that's okay. I don't mind doing it. I like doing it. Nice. The only time I don't like doing it is when I give them an answer and then they go, oh, but could you just go ask the vet for me? Oh, my goodness. And I want to throw it back at them and be like, I assure you, Brooke knows more than I do about this. <laughs> Uh, so one of the questions I've got lined up here is, uh, my dog chews up my house when I leave. What are some tips for separation anxiety? Yeah, separation anxiety is a tough one um, for sure. And it's something that we we as owners don't realize that we're feeding into a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And like I think we do a uh, lot of things to it, actually encourage it. <laughs> it's true. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this um, with all the pandemic puppies. Mm-hmm. As people start going back to offices and back to work, dogs that were used to having people around essentially 24-7 are now going to be left home alone for stretches of the day. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, a lot of a lot of that stuff actually comes from training as puppies and doing a good job of preventing that. But once we already have a separation anxiety thing going on, I like to usually kind of break it down into like three steps Mm -hmm. um, to try to counteract it. So like the first one being um, kind of noticing or realizing what your dog's triggers are. Mm, Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always, there's always going to be specific triggers for your dog. Maybe it's you picking up the keys or putting and that's your boots how they on know you're leaving. Your or, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And kind of counter conditioning to those specific cues. So, you know, you're home all day and you're not going to go anywhere, pick up your keys every hour and walk around for a while. And then when your dog settles and doesn't make a big deal out of it, then you can reward them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right. So kind of counter conditioning that this cue shouldn't be a big deal for you. Yeah. Kind of reassociating um, it with something else, just kind of extinguishing what they had put two and two together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a big one. Um, a huge one that is a lot more difficult for people than some might think is toning down your departure and your greeting mm-hmm. with your dogs. Uh, so when you come home, it doesn't get to be a big deal. You don't get to stand at the door and pet them a bunch and have them jump all over you and be really excited to see you. You need to ignore them. That's <laughs> such a hard one really to do, awful. though, because like that's it's like the highlight of your day do. because you get home I after know. a long day and they're happy to see you. I know, but I promise your days will be a lot better if you stop <laughs> coming home to your couch being chewed up every time. <laughs> It sucks for now, but uh, I promise it will help. Mean old nurse Brooke. I know. I'm the worst. 
But the same thing goes for when you're leaving, you know, standing at the door for 10 minutes before you go, telling them that you're so sorry that you're going and giving them a whole bunch of attention also doesn't help. <laughs> I know. It's, I agree, though. That is one of the hardest ones is training ourselves is honestly the, the hardest part. Yes. And that's and actually it's goes for a lot of our our dog behavior issues is is training yourself as an owner mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to without realizing it a lot of the stuff we do encourage for sure and I'm just like thinking myself like as I left this morning I was like oh no <laughs> I did all those things I'm causing it <laughs> I am the problem <laughs> and lots of the times it's just those those little things that do take a lot of work but but they will make a huge difference. It's just all about consistency, which is the most difficult part. Yeah. And I think in, from a more preventative standpoint, I think teaching animals, teaching your pets that it's okay to be alone and spend time alone, I think yeah. is goes a long way. Um, crate training is one way to do that. Yeah. Um, crate another, training is a really big one. Even if people don't like crate mat training, so like just having like a mm-hmm. bed or a place for them to go to, you can even do that as well. Yeah. Important to note, though, that crate training is not a treatment if your pet already has separation anxiety. Good point. That's not a way to go about it, but it is really helpful in prevention. You actually make it worse if you have an uncrate trained dog and you shove them in a crate to try to prevent them from wrecking things. It'll actually amp it up to the nines. So another really common question that we field is, um, when is the best time to spay and neuter your dog? And should we allow female dogs to go through heat at least once? Yeah, that's uh, a bit of a tough question because it is for sure becoming more and more individual. Mm Mm-hmm as the new research comes out. And I think that it is a very, very important conversation to have with your veterinarian to find out what's best for your family and your veterinarian. Yeah, it used to be blanket recommendations were given where everybody's done at the same time, same recommendations for everyone. And I agree that it's becoming more individual and um, it's not as easy as it used to be to give us a clear-cut answer. And I think that's why I'm really happy that people actually do ask that question fairly often. And it's because of that that we're we're becoming more nuanced with our recommendations because um, it is a an invasive medical procedure and it does have a profound physiologic effect on the body and so I I'm really even though it's a lot more work and effort on our part I think it's a good idea that we're spending more time considering some of the pros and cons of the procedure. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and again, it's it's not just for your pet either. Like there's definitely pros and cons as far as, you know, behavior goes and health goes, Mm -hmm. things like mammary Mm -hmm. cancer decreases the risk when you're spaying, pyometra, that sort of thing. But it's also important to consider um, the owners in Mm -hmm. that discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if you have a six-month-old Rottweiler, for example, and you can't keep them away from other dogs or you can't guarantee that they won't have an unwanted litter in the six months, the next six months, then you should probably spay them now. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. if you're unwilling to pay the extra $200 to spay that dog when she's 50 more pounds and has gone through a bunch of heat cycles and it's a more difficult procedure, then again, you should probably spay her now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and I think those are great points. Those are very practical points. Cause I find if, if you, if you look it up online, you know, something that seems like a simple question on the surface 
the array of answers you get is absolutely staggering. It's hard to parse through all of it. And some of it's really bad information that's out there. Yeah. And it's very, you're right. It's very surface level. It's always about, oh, well, some information says that they'll get hip dysplasia if you do it now. So you shouldn't. And, and that's not there all, not all there the is to yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little more nuanced than that. And there's other factors that play in. I mean, how many times have we heard that where it's like, well, um, I kept my dog intact so it wouldn't get hip dysplasia. And you're like, okay, but it's obese. And now that has contributed to the hip dysplasia. <laughs> and I would also like to point out that things like hip, hip and elbow dysplasia have a massive genetic component. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want your pet to get hip or elbow dysplasia, you should probably do the research on your breeder. Yep. And make sure that the animals have been tested to see if they're, uh, what their hips and and joints are looking like. So yes. And testing is very important. Yeah. That's going to go a long way for sure. Yeah. And there's, and there's so much information that's evolving. Yeah. hundred percent. And that's something again, that, I mean, we could talk all day, all day again about (laughs) the breeder type situation, Yeah, but if you're, if you're concerned about those sort of issues, and they matter to you, then you should be willing to pay more for that pet mm-hmm. because it's had those tests done. Yeah, because that's not free. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. just picking, yeah, exactly. If you're just picking up a dog that someone happened to have, you know, as an unwanted litter, then they're not going to come with those guarantees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then don't be surprised when you're blindsided then your dog has all these, like, inherited issues. <laughs> And that's not to say that one is better than the other. I'm, I don't think that everyone who wants a pet should have to spend $2,000 on a puppy, mm-hmm. but you just have to understand that that comes with risks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and that you're not going to fix it all just because you left it intact till it was two years old. I like bringing it back to a practical standpoint, I find, because there is mm-hmm. so much conflicting information that's out there right now. And honestly, even from a scientific standpoint, some of the studies are questionable and others are better than yes. others. And we're drawing a lot of generalizations from very specific studies. Like the, the one yes. thing I try to emphasize is two of the most well-known studies that are linking increased prevalence of cancers in, in dogs that are in intact versus not intact. Um, It's very, very extremely specific. The one paper is osteosarcoma in Rottweiler breeds. The other is hemangiosarcoma, lymphosarcoma in golden retrievers. Yes, extremely specific. Very specific. So like to say that, to then take that conclusion and apply it to your chihuahua and saying it'll never get cancer if you keep it intact is incorrect. (laughs) to say the least. <laughs> yes, um, and so, <laughs> that's a very good point. So we have to be cautious with how much we interpret into these um, while also using this this new information to help frame our decision making. Because um, there have been a few cases where I have been uh, counseling owners and saying that maybe it would be better to have them intact for a little bit longer, like our giant breed dogs, for example. Um, but then we mm-hmm. have to talk about the practicalities and the costs associated with spaying a dog that's now you know, a much bigger deal than it was uh, when they were six months old. Spaying a dog that's two years old is a completely different ballgame. You're looking at increased post-surgical risks. You're looking at um, increased expense and cost because it's a more difficult procedure to do. Those are all things to consider as well that I feel like aren't often addressed. And also to keep in mind is um, I know that there are certainly in some of the rural practices veterinarians who won't be comfortable doing those procedures anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah, because so now you're looking at going into the city Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something like that, and that's also going to add to your costs. Yeah, and the difficulty of accessing the the care that they need. Yeah, no, that's a good point too. Yeah, not everybody's comfortable spaying the three year old obese Rottweiler. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and that's actually something to touch on too. Is that one of the the biggest things that I get from my clients as a reason why not to spay is obesity, and that is again entirely untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, When we spay our pets or even neuter our pets. It's true that their, their caloric intake that they need does decrease because their, their metabolic rate decreases, but to counteract that, you just have to feed them less. Yes. (laughs) It's a, it's a case of calories in versus calories out. Mm -hmm. Yes. They don't get fat because they're spayed. They get fat because you're feeding them too much. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Because I mean, we've seen, I've seen so many intact animals that are obese. So you can definitely make them fat, oh, yeah. even if they're intact. <laughs> the concerted effort. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a good point because that is one of the hesitations people will have is is that uh, mm-hmm. they'll they'll neuter him and then he'll get fat. And I'm like, well, you know, I try to sometimes depending on the client, I might make light of it, saying, hey, you'll save some money on food bills because you have to feed them less. <laughs> hey, there you, there go. you go. Think about that. <laughs> so yeah. Um, no, Another thing to touch on is um, when uh, people choose to leave their pets intact because they're working dogs. Mm -hmm. I have that sometimes, you know, whether you're a guard dog or, you know, like a cattle dog, the thought process is that leaving them intact will make them better workers. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is no evidence to support that. Yeah, I've Um, seen it both ways where we've got intact animals that are terrible at their job and neutered ones that do really well. So yeah, good training and genetic instinct are not altered by removing testicles or removing uterus. Uh, I've got a third question here. Uh, it's the question here is, what's the deal with barn cats? Are they feral? Do they carry diseases? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just what's up with barn cats, basically? Yeah, so I think a good place to start with that is, um, let's maybe put a bit of a definition on what is a feral cat. So, because a feral cat, when I think of a feral, so a feral animal is an animal that's, was a, it's a domesticated species. And it is now out living on its own, fending for itself with no human intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, these are animals that are also not very tame. So because being tame is different than being domesticated. You can tame wild animals. Um, being tame means that they tolerate human presence and handling. So you can have feral cats or feral animals that are not tame. <laughs> Essentially, a wild animal, yep. <laughs> um, but they still they do, they're they're still distinct because they are a, a domesticated animal that's now in an ecosystem that's not necessarily their own. So there's there's a whole can of worms with uh, feral animals and uh, and how they interact with the environment that they've been released into. And I would say a feral cat's different in a lot of ways from a barn cat, but not always. They should they they overlap. Think of it like a Venn diagram where some feral cats are barn cats and some barn cats are feral, but not all barn cats are feral and neither all feral cats barn cats. If that made sense. <laughs> Yes, it did. I promise. (laughs) Right. Because, I mean, there's plenty of barn cats that are super friendly, you know, and they'll sometimes even come into the house and they're and they hang around the yard and they stay there. And they're they're basically they're basically an outside only cat is what they are. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can also have barn cats that you see once in a blue moon and you can't touch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then you'll have some feral cats that um, don't belong to anybody, and they have no uh, no human caretaker associated with them. They're just out on their own. 
Right. And I think that uh, the barn cat discussion um, can be a little bit tricky to navigate because everybody has their own opinions on barn cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there there are lots of different points to consider when we're talking about barn cats. Mm-hmm. Um, like a big one for me is, well, and I know for you as well, mm-hmm. is the impact that they have on wildlife. Mm-hmm. It's significant. The amount of it's songbirds extremely that they significant. kill is insane. Outdoor cats kill thousands and thousands of birds a year that wouldn't have died otherwise. Um, And they they threaten a lot of songbird populations as a result. Mm -hmm. And it's important to remember, too, that people talk about, oh, well, you know, they're meant to be outside, but they're they're not. (laughs) Uh, We brought them here and decided to stick them outside. And that's had an impact on the wildlife. And Mm -hmm. it's important to remember that. And the other thing to think about too, is that, um, I know that I have lots of people that end up with quite a few barn cats that are not necessarily being cared for properly. And that's a tough road to navigate as well, because, you know, the thought process is sometimes that, oh, well, they're just barn cats and they're just out on their own, but they're not out on their own because you are feeding them and Mm -hmm. you are providing them with shelter, which means that you are, you have now restricted them so that they are reliant on you. Yeah. And they're your responsibility as a result. So then they become your responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a very frustrating mentality to butt up against because, yeah, you'll have animals that really desperately need some kind of care and uh, you have the mentality that they they don't deserve any at all. And uh, Mm -hmm. I don't like that very much. (laughs) No, that's that's when you do get these problems with diseases and infections and other nonsense. Yeah. Well, things like upper respiratory diseases, especially when you have multiple cats in the same barn they're Mm -hmm. seeking the same shelter especially in our winters our Mm -hmm. cold winters we have provided them you as an owner have now provided them with a space to go and they are all crammed into one little space the spread of disease is very very fast yeah and they also carry some zoonotic diseases too honestly so they pose a human health risk in some cases We've got another question here. Uh, My kids really, really want a dog, but I'm super allergic to them. Is there anything we can do? Are there non-allergenic dogs or cats? Well, um, (laughs) it's okay. So there's a persistent myth about hypoallergenic dogs. I hear it a lot where people will get, I think it's frequently doodle crosses, isn't it? Yeah, it's that almost are touted always as being the hypo- doodle yeah, crosses. Yeah. Or you know what else is the uh, the Shiba Inus okay, are yeah. being now like kind of marketed as non-allergenic. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it comes down to understanding what part of the animal you are allergic to. And um, in the case of cats, it's typically a protein that's in their either their saliva or their dander. Um, and I think it's similar in dogs. It has to do with some of the protein in their shed skin and occasionally part of their fur. So where the idea came from that doodles and, uh, and Shiba Inus and these things are not allergenic is, the, is because they don't typically shed the way that some of the other breeds of dogs do and that they mm-hmm. need their hair trimmed to be groomed instead. And so people assume like, oh, there's no shed hair, therefore no allergies. But I don't think that's necessarily true because I know lots of people that are going to be allergic to Shih Tzus and 
they don't really shed. You have to trim their hair as well. And they've never been touted as uh, hypoallergenic dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's a tough one because I know a lot of people that their love of animals just makes it so they just suffer every day with how allergic they are. <laughs> And uh, that's something I I encourage that if somebody really, really wants to have an animal around, you can either consider an animal um, like a reptile that has no dander and has no fur. (laughs) And I promise they make really great pets. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Well, certain ones of them, you got to pick and choose which ones ones are going to work great. Um, But also working with um, human, your human allergist, I think, because I believe uh, hyposensitization injections. I know a few people that have had that for when they're around animals. Um, One really cool point that I want to bring up, though, and I'm hoping this is the future for dogs as well, but there is now a cat food that reduces expression of a certain type of protein in their system. And it's one of the most common allergens that people react to in dander and saliva of cats. It's this protein in particular. And so feeding the cat this food, they end up producing much lower levels of that specific protein. And so then the cat is no longer as allergenic to the humans. Yeah, it's really cool. And I think that a really important point that you made there throughout the whole little bit of your spiel there actually was that this is all reducing the allergens yeah you're not gonna get a dog that you're just not allergic to that that isn't possible (laughs) if you're allergic to dogs you're allergic to dogs yeah but there are specific decisions that you can make to kind of reduce the risk of that yeah and i know some people if they if their kids really really want a dog and they also do and they just put up with it um certainly things like uh, a dog that doesn't shed is going to be a lot easier to clean up after Mm-hmm. Um, but you still have to do things like uh, frequent groomings, um, getting HEPA filters installed in the home, um, frequent hand washing on your own part, not touching your face after you pet your dog. I mean, you th- yeah, which you we've think all got be. very used to now. Yeah, like you, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> practice stuff. <laughs> Everybody's practiced on that. Uh, I mean, those are all little things you can do to make things uh, a little bit. Uh, easier on yourself. But yeah, you're right. There's no there's no silver silver bullet when it comes to allergies and either humans or animals. Um, but uh, I still don't think it precludes having pets. Sometimes you have to think outside the, the box, though. Like, mm-hmm. us, like I said, you could consider something that doesn't have fur. You know, you can get fish, you can get reptiles, you can get snakes. Birds. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a bird. Yep. Yeah. So there are things, even sometimes even rabbits, some people will not be allergic to rabbits, but they will be to cats, for example. So um, you could get a hamster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can get you can get creative. So, um, but yeah, I wish it was true, and I think that's why a lot of people buy into it as a myth that the dog's hypoallergenic because they really want it to be true. Yeah, it would be so nice. Yeah, and I find like I mean, to an extent, it's it's I don't want to say it's true, but they will react less to it simply because there is less fur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, they're they're not truly they're not really actually hypoallergenic. That's not actually really a. Th- thing I want yeah to say. it is a bit of a strange label that we've placed on them yeah it's it's weird <laughs> <laughs> I mean no more weird than some of the names we give them you know like some of these well, weird crosses true. so yeah. what was the one the other day oh the bullshit yeah the bullshit it was a bulldog shih tzu um, yeah that was, a, that was cute. there was a Havanese poodle the other day called a havapoo havapoo that's cute <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous I think <laughs> My favorite is when we uh, we get dogs in that are uh, a specific breed, like let's say, you know, 
say a, a Shih Tzu mm-hmm. crossed with a doodle of some sort. Mm, yep. Like a Bernadoodle mom and then a, you know, a golden retriever dad or something like yeah. that. And then now we're using like doodle as its own breed. <laughs> You know, when really, We're I mean, it's like a golden, golden yeah, Bernadoodle really thing. Us, no, it's, 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 it's an expensive mutt at that it's point. Really just a mutt. Let's just be honest with ourselves at this point. <laughs> Which is fine. I'm a big proponent of mutts. I love mutts. Mutts make the best dogs, in my opinion. Yeah, I got a couple but of Heinz You just call it myself. what it is. <laughs> you just call it what it is. <laughs> that is great. That's a wrap. I hope you had fun, Brooke. Always, babe. See, that wasn't too bad. Thank you for listening to the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And while you're at it, why not tell your friends about us? Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Check out the show notes to see where you can find us on social media and for more information on the Dr. Savannah Wild Rose Vet television series. The Wild Rose Vet Podcast is hosted by Dr. Savannah Howe-Smith. Produced by Trent Wilkie, Shirley McLean, Dylan Wirtz, Tanya Cognigotier, and Valerie Oudmarchand. Recorded by Ian Armstrong at Wolf Willow Studios. With original music by Wayne LaVallee.